Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do rejoice today. We rejoice because Emmanuel has come, because God did come to be one of us. God became man to rescue us from our sin. And Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word, that we would respond and in worship and adoration of Christ our King. Lord, prepare us for a week of of rejoicing in what He has done in coming to be a man. We thank You and commit our time to You now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it is a great joy to be back with you today. had the privilege of being here back in August when you were in the midst of, of searching for a new pastor and now with, it's, it's such a joy to, to know of Eric coming in just a couple of weeks and to get to, to be with you in the meantime, and just a privilege to get to look at God's Word together as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas this week. You know, my wife and I have, have many fond memories of life here at the chapel and in, in Cape. One of those is the birth of our oldest daughter, Anna, who was uh, born over 13 years ago here in Missouri. Our other four daughters are all Texans. They were born uh, after we moved to Texas. But Anna is a, a true Missourian, born in Southeast Hospital. And, and you know, really, there's, there's nothing like the joy and the wonder of the birth of your first child. Many in this room can relate to that, that, that amazing time when this fully developed little one comes into, into the world after months of waiting and anticipating and, and not knowing exactly what that's going to be like, even though you've been to classes or whatever it is. And, you know, nothing can prepare you for that moment, and nothing is ever the same afterwards. As we've sung today, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of a unique firstborn baby, the baby Jesus. Had you been there for that birth, it would have seemed like any other birth. In fact, the the Gospels record almost nothing of the actual birth of Jesus because it was so typical. In Matthew chapter 1, it just says Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Luke chapter 2 says while they were in, in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Yet while a typical human birth... It was unlike any other. It was as was just sung, the birth of Emmanuel, of God with us. Christmas is about that reality. It's about the reality of the incarnation of God becoming a man. Last week with Dr. Williams, who I know you all have, have come to love as he's been, uh, been with you a number of times, and he was one of my favorite professors while at Southern uh, looked with you at, at Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of the account of the birth of Christ, of the account of God becoming a man. You observed on, in all the details of His birth how those pointed to the realities that He was the Messiah and the Savior and the Son of God. Well, this morning I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which we'll consider together during our time this morning. It's a a passage that also describes that reality of God becoming man, and yet it does so not from the perspective of, of an outsider observing those events. It really presents for us the perspective of Jesus, of the God who became man 
And what we see in this passage is the incredible selfless sacrifice that he made. You know, if you think about it, for us, birth and conception is really a a, a great promotion. When we are born, when we are conceived, we go from, from nothing to existence, which is a glorious change that we celebrate. But for Jesus, those same realities of human conception and human birth, of becoming a man, were a great condescension an act of selfless sacrifice to benefit others rather than himself. And really, in the context of Philippians 2, Paul is exhorting the believers in Philippi to to live with that attitude, with an attitude of humility and and self-sacrifice, considering others more important than themselves. And he uses what was likely an early Christian hymn to hold up Christ in his incarnation as the ultimate example of that attitude of humility and sacrifice. So let's Read it together. We'll begin in verse 3 of chapter 2 to set the context. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The incredible selfless sacrifice of Christ seen here in verses 6-8 through eight, begins first with the sacrifice of Christ becoming a man. As you see in these verses, they describe Jesus as one taking the form of a bondservant or being made in the likeness of men, of one being found in appearance as a man. We'll, we'll see that all these phrases describe that amazing reality of Jesus becoming human, of Jesus becoming a man. However, as I mentioned, Paul's point is not simply to teach that that happened. His point is to show the amazing sacrifice that it was for Christ to do that. And to appreciate that sacrifice, we we must first understand where Paul begins with what was true of Christ before he became a man. Look at verse 6. It says of Jesus, who although he existed, in the form of God. You see, before Jesus became a man, before He was born as a baby over 2,000 years ago, He existed and had existed for all of eternity. This verse clearly implies that Jesus existed prior to becoming a man. Colossians 1.17 says He is before all things. Jesus not only existed before He became a man, He existed before anything else came into existence. He existed in the form of God, it says. Now this word form, if, if you have a, an English Standard Version or a New American Standard that that, the, that translation uses when it says He existed in the form of God is, is somewhat of a, a difficult word to translate into English. Form is not a, a great equivalent to the Greek word there, but it's kind of the best one that we have. You know, when you think of form in English, you, you think of something that displays the external appearance or quality of something. 
Several of my daughters love to play, out of, play with Play-Doh. And so they can form something in Play-Doh. They can make something out of Play-Doh. Maybe they make something that, that looks like a cat. And it would be appropriate to say this, this little thing that they've made has the form of a cat. Now, is it really a cat? No. Does it have all the qualities of a cat? No. But it, it has the external appearance. Well, that's, that's how we might be tempted to think of this word, but that's not the point that Paul is making. He's not saying Jesus existed as kind of this sculpture of God, as this one who gave the outward appearance of God. The, the point of this word is, is that he displayed all the attributes of God, all the essence of God. You see, one, God is, is spirit, so he has no outward form that Jesus could take. And really, this Greek word denotes form not in terms of external features, as one writer says, but in something that is recognized by the characteristics that are essential to it. What Paul is saying is Jesus existed, and he existed having all the essential characteristics and nature of God. This is the clear testimony of of all of Scripture. In John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, later defined as Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. That's what Paul's saying. He existed as very God. In fact, some versions, if you have the the NIV, don't even mess with translating it as form of God. They just say, who is being in very nature God. That was Jesus. He was God, possessing all the attributes, all the rights, all the glory of God. That was Jesus before He became a man. Now if God is going to become a man, what is required of that? Well, Paul describes for us first the attitude that was necessary for Christ to do this. Notice the end of verse 6. It says, This one who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's, it's not saying that he looked at equality with God and said, no, I don't care to have that. He, he's making the point Jesus possessed equality with God. He's restating what he's already stated, that he was God. And yet he says he didn't cling to that. He didn't grasp it. He didn't seize it for his own advantage. This means not that he uh, was was eager to be equal with God? No, he was equal with God, but he did not regard that equality as something to be used for his own gain. He didn't think of himself and say, how can I make use of my deity for my own benefit? He didn't cling to it in that way. It's really the point of this chapter for the Philippians is not to live with selfishness or conceit, with, with selfish ambition. And Jesus here said he, it says He didn't do that. He didn't grasp at His deity to do it in that way. It says He, he also means that He didn't regard that equality as something to be clung to at all costs. One commentator, Lightfoot, puts it this way. He says, He, though existing before the worlds in the form of God, did not treat His equality with God as a prize, a treasure to be greedily clutched, and ostentatiously displayed. On the contrary, he resigned the glories of heaven. Phillips paraphrases this verse, He who had always been God by nature did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. 
what was required for this God to become a man, an attitude of humility, a selfless attitude that says, I'm not going to cling to my rights and privileges as God. I'm not going to use them for my selfish ambition. And that attitude led him to act, which we see in verse 7. It says in verse 7, but instead of clinging to those things, he emptied himself. Now this raises a, a question that has been debated by Christians for centuries of, of what did Christ empty himself? If he didn't cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself, of what did he empty himself? Well, some have mistakenly thought that he emptied himself of his deity. That's heresy. That he set aside his deity to become a man. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what is true. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He was still fully God when he became man. Colossians 2.9 says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He was still fully God. See, it's, it's really not that Jesus gave up his deity to become man. Rather, it's that adding humanity to his deity was an emptying of himself, was a giving up of something. He added, or he emptied himself by adding. It says he emptied himself taking the form of and being made in the likeness of men. Now think with me here. It, it's really saying that, that Jesus, there, there was subtraction by addition. Now you say, wait a minute, you're from Texas. What kind of math do they teach in Texas? Where you can subtract by adding. That doesn't work mathematically. What, what's he saying? Well, Dr., uh, Dr. Bruce Ware, who I think you've had the, the privilege of, of getting to know a bit as well, gives a, an example of someone who goes to a, a new car dealership. To, to buy a, a, they've been saving up and they're going to buy a fancy new sports car or something, maybe a, a BMW that's, that's shiny and brand new and, and you go and you look at that car and, and it's just amazing in all of its glory and you want to take it for a test drive. And so you take it out on the roads and, and you want to see what it can do and, and you're out in the country and before you know it you turn on a little dirt road and it's been raining and it's kind of muddy and mud gets caked on that car and you're having the time of your life test driving that car and you pull it back into the dealer and the dealer looks at it, and that salesman says, what did you do to the car? And you say, well, uh, it's, it's still the car. All the attributes of this car are still there. I even added something to it. I, I added a bunch of caked-on mud to the car. And that dealer's going to say, you took away from that car. You didn't add to that car. You see, you added something to it, but in so doing, you, you veiled the, the glory of that car. You didn't remove the glory of that car, but it's now veiled. That's what, that's what Jesus did. He retained full de deity when He emptied Himself, but He did veil that deity, and He did give up some things in adding that full humanity. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor. Jesus went from rich to poor. Now, what did he give up? What was it that in becoming a man, he gave up? I want you to turn to John chapter 17 briefly this morning. John 17, Jesus, towards the end of his life, just before he goes to the cross, is, is praying his great high priestly prayer. And he's pouring out his heart to the Father. And, and notice what he says as he's praying to the Father 
in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You catch that? Jesus is praying and He's praying, God, glorify me, but not with a glory that I've, that I've never had. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. You see, before Jesus became a man, He enjoyed glory that as a man He did not have. He went from being the object of constant adoration and worship to one despised and rejected of men. And here he's praying to the Father, restore that glory to me as I'm faithful to finish the work that you have given me. It doesn't mean that he received no glory while on earth. He did, but nothing like he'd enjoyed in heaven. And it has to do not only with the glory He received, but the glory that He displayed. It doesn't mean, again, that Jesus did not display His glory at times while on the earth. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the Father. And In coming a man, Jesus was revealing the glory of God in the flesh. We got a, a taste of God in the flesh. We got to see God in a way that we otherwise would not. But it was a veiled glory, a glory that paled to what he deserves and had enjoyed for all eternity. In some ways, we got to see the BMW with the mud caked on it, not in all its glory. Jesus gave up that glory. He emptied himself and was willing to come. He gave up also, secondly, the the independent exercise of his divine authority and attributes. Or think of it this way he simply couldn't act free, he couldn't freely act like God. Think of prior to his ministry. When Jesus came as a baby and grew as a child and became a man, there is no evidence in Scripture that he ever made use of his divine attributes or authority during that stage of his life. I mean, think about it. Jesus had brothers and and sisters. Think how handy something like omniscience would come in to play. When you're playing hide-and-seek, it's like, man, it's no fun playing hide-and-seek with Jesus. He knows right where you are all the time. Uh, or, or like trivial pursuit. He knows everything. It's just no fun. Or it's time to clean your room, and the, you know, your brother is working really hard putting stuff back, and Jesus snaps his fingers or says a word, and bam, the room is clean. But did Jesus do that? Jesus had existed for all eternity exercising those attributes, and yet as a man, he did not. He gave that up. In fact, so much so that when he started his ministry, all those brothers and sisters who'd lived with him for years, when he started claiming to be God and doing those things, what was their response? Well, they thought he was nuts. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when his people, likely his family, heard of this, they, they went out to take custody of him and were saying he's lost his senses. You see, his family thought he was Crazy because for 30 years he'd lived like any other man when in fact he was also fully God. And during his ministry, he only used his divine attributes and authority in submission to the Father and never for his own gain. Think of when he was tempted and and Satan was telling him, "You're, you're hungry, it's been 40 days, turn some of these stones to bread. Could Jesus do that? 
Absolutely he could. But he did not use that power for his own gain. And so he said, no. Or when he's on the cross, he, he could have called down, Scripture says, legions of angels to come to his aid. And yet he didn't. He laid aside the use of those attributes and authority in any selfish way, in any way that would benefit himself. You know, there's no human example that can do this justice, is there? Maybe it would be helpful for us to think of, of a king who's going among his subjects and he sees someone living as a beggar and he, he wants to understand what that life would be like. And so he goes back to his castle and he takes off his robes and he dresses as a beggar and he goes and he, he lives as a beggar for a period of days or weeks or, or months. That king still has all the rights and authority as king and yet he cannot live as a beggar and exercise those rights and authority freely. He lays that aside. How, there's the, the, the Christmas song, How Many Kings Step Down from Their Thrones. Does anybody ever do that? <laughs> no, but Jesus did. Or makes me think a little bit of the, the movie The Incredibles. Some of you might have seen a number of years ago where there's these superheroes with powers, but because of the pressure of the world around them, they have to live as though they don't have those powers. They have to set those aside and live like normal people and endure the frustrations of those things that they face. Well, they, they did that because they had to in that movie. Jesus, this wasn't forced on Him. He willingly chose to live in that way. It's amazing that God, that Jesus, was willing to not cling to his equality with God, to not cling to those rights and privileges, but to empty himself to become a man. You know, if you had not read the Bible, if you had not heard about Jesus, and I told you that God became a man, what would you expect that to look like? You would expect it to be with great fanfare, right? <laughs> That God announced to all, I'm coming, you will worship me, you will bring gifts to me, you will treat me as I deserve. Notice how Jesus became a man. It says he emptied himself, and he did so taking the form of a bondservant. Mark 10.45 says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. God came not to have humanity serve Him but to serve them. Again, it says taking the form of, not, not again the external appearance, but all the qualities of a bondservant, of a slave. One with no rights of their own, no property of their own. That was Jesus' life in this world. One writer says, the one who could have rightly claimed the highest position in human history and justly received supreme honors deliberately sought the lowest position. If God became man, you would not expect Him to come as a servant. But that's what Jesus did. And we see that in His birth, don't we? His birth is obscure. His birth is ignored by everybody who's anybody. The religious leaders, the other prominent people in, in Israel couldn't have cared less. It's in a small town, not in a, a palace surrounded by royalty, but in a cave likely surrounded by animals amazing that not only did Jesus not assert his rights as God by being willing to come as a man, he didn't even assert his rights as man. And he truly did become a man. This verse continues, and, and he was in the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness 
of men. It's not saying he only looked like men. He was one. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He truly did become a real man, flesh and blood, born as we were, growing like we were, needing all the things that we need, food and and air and, and others. But this phrase, in the likeness of men, does allow for one distinction that we see in Scripture. Paul doesn't say he was exactly like us. He says he was in the likeness of us because there was one thing different about Jesus as a man, and that was the reality of sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus as a man dealt with all the realities and frailties of life in a sinful world as we do, sickness and, and hardships and all of the things that we face, yet he himself had no sin. See, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. But not only did God willingly sacrifice of himself in becoming a man, there's more. Secondly and briefly, we see the sacrifice of Christ dying as a man. Look at verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, just summarizing what he's already said, again, not simply that he had the external appearance, but that being a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, as we said, came as a man, not as Lord, but as servant. And the greatest service he offered was in being obedient to his Father unto death. That verse in Mark 10.45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, continues, and to give his life a ransom for many. See, the plan all along was for Jesus to be born in order that he might die. And Jesus faithfully fulfilled that plan, being obedient to his Father and being willing to go to the cross. You know, the last thing you would expect of God is that he would give up so much to become a man. And if he ever did, the last thing you would expect of God becoming a man is that he would become a servant of men. And if he ever did, the last thing you would expect is that he would be willing to serve unto death. Jesus did that. Even death, it says, on a cross. The most shameful of deaths in that day. That's what God was willing to do. That's the selfless sacrifice of God becoming a man. Now this sacrifice that we've seen in this passage raises a couple of questions in my mind, likely in yours as well. The, the first and the biggest is simply, why? Why would Jesus, who had existed as God for all of eternity, with all the rights and privileges of God, why would He sacrifice Himself by becoming a man and then dying as a man? 
You know, the Bible is full of answers to that question. Let me try to summarize them in in two ideas. Why did Jesus do that? Why did He sacrifice Himself in that way? Well, He did so because of our desperate need. Because we needed Him to. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, a verse I mentioned previously, says, Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things. He had to be made like us. He had to become a man. Why? So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, the reality is we are all sinners deserving of God's judgment, and the only way for that judgment to be satisfied other than us bearing it ourselves was for a perfect human substitute to take our place. And the only way that happens is God becoming man. There is no other way. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. We we couldn't keep God's commands and therefore be right with God. God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus was willing to sacrifice Himself in this way to meet our desperate need. There was no other way for us to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God. Boyce writes this. He says, Jesus Christ became like us in order that we might become like Him. The incarnation that we celebrate this week was not an end in itself. It was God's way of coming to us that we might be redeemed from the penalty of sin and then transformed from within to the image of His Son. As that verse in 2 Corinthians 8, He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that through His poverty we might become rich. Jesus was willing to sacrifice Himself in order to meet our desperate need, but the reality is He didn't have to do that. Just because we had a need doesn't mean He had to meet that need. In fact, we had, there was nothing in us that was deserving of Him coming to meet that need. It was our sin, our rebellion that put us in that precarious position. See, He came to sacrifice because of our need, but even more because of His gracious character. 2 Corinthians 8-9 begins with, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that being rich He became poor. Jesus was willing to be gracious to us. God is a saving God, a rescuing God, and so He was willing to come at great cost to Himself. Romans chapter 5 describes this reality as well where it says, we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. You know, this sacrifice of Christ, it it might be understandable, if the people he was sacrificing for really deserved it. If they were good or righteous, you could say, okay, I can see sacrificing for someone like that. But the Scripture says God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love and grace are so amazing that He sacrificed Himself for those who had rebelled against Him, His enemies, who were utterly helpless and undeserving. Well, how should we respond 
to the amazing sacrifice of Christ. What should we think about this week as we contemplate the amazing sacrifice of Christ in becoming a man? Well, one response we see in this passage is that we should confess Jesus as Lord. Notice the story of Christ doesn't end in verse 8 with His death on the cross. Verse 9 says, For this reason God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus has done, one day all will confess Him as Lord. God has exalted Him. But only those who humbly confess Him as Lord in this life will be saved. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved because of the selfless sacrifice of Christ on your behalf if you confess Him as Lord and believe what He's done. But a second response is, is we should have the same attitude as Jesus. That's Paul's point here really in Philippians 2. Verse 5 says, have this same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the attitude of giving up your rights and giving up your authority and, and giving up your ambition to be a benefit to others. Have the humility that lives not for yourself, but for others. Verses 3 and 4 tell us what that looks like. It means you don't live for selfishness or empty conceit. It means you think about other people more important than yourself. It means you don't just look out for what you want and you need. You think about others in those ways. It's, it's somewhat ironic and, and sad, I think, that Christmas, the time we celebrate the greatest sacrificial act ever of God becoming a man, is one of the most selfish times when we think about what we're getting in that way. Imitate Christ's attitude of humility and selfless giving. And then a, a third and final response, we should worship Jesus. This passage was likely an early Christian hymn. Some Bibles have it printed more like a psalm. looks like poetry in there because it was likely a hymn that the early church sang exalting Christ and Paul took that and and used it to apply this truth in this letter Jesus is worthy of worship it's right for us to adore him because of the amazing sacrifice that he has done on our behalf so this christmas as you go throughout the next week remember the account of the incarnation think about angels and mangers and Mary and Joseph and shepherds and magi and all of those details and how they declare Jesus to be the Christ. But do more than that. Think about it from Jesus' perspective. Think about the selfless sacrifice required of God becoming man. The sacrifice of Christ who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, this morning, it's our joy to remember those realities in the particular manner that Christ Himself prescribed through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, Jesus 
instituted this memorial just before his death as he ate the Passover meal with his disciples. It's recorded for us in several places in Scripture. One of those is Luke 22, which says this, When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. You know, this bread and, and this cup remind us of the realities that we have considered together today. He says, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. They remind us that Jesus had a, a body just like ours, that, that there was blood flowing through His veins just like ours. They picture the fact that Jesus became a man. But more than that, He says, this is my body given for you. And this is my blood poured out for you. They picture not only the reality that Jesus became a man, but the reality that He died as a man. He gave Himself in violent death. That body was broken and crushed. That blood was poured out for us so that we might have life. This memorial, the Lord's Supper, is for all those who have come to Christ in faith, for those for whom Jesus is Lord, to participate in remembering Him together. And if you're in Christ today and are, are not holding on to sin, I invite you, whenever you're ready, to make your way to one of the tables around the auditorium to partake of the elements as the music plays. But let's pray together before we do that. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Christ. We thank You that though He existed in the form of God, though He enjoyed all the rights and privileges and authority of God, He was willing to humble Himself. To humble Himself by becoming a man. And not just any man, a servant of men, unto death, unto death on the cross. Lord, we benefit in amazing ways from His selfless sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, if there are those today who have never come to a place of confessing Christ as Lord, of believing what He has done on the cross, I pray that they might reflect on those realities even now and humble themselves before Him. And Lord, for those of us who have benefited from His sacrifice, who have come to Him, Lord, give us a fresh joy, a fresh heart of worship, even as we partake of the Lord's table. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for making light of Christ's sacrifice, for continuing to live for ourselves and not for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. Lord, we thank You this morning for Christ and for the privilege that it is to know Him and to remember Him in this manner. We pray in Christ's name.